Welcome to Good Seats Still Available, a curious little podcast devoted to exploring what used to be in professional sports. Here's your host, Tim Hanlon. Oh boy, oh boy. How you doing, everybody? It's uh, your pal, Tim. Tim Hanlon, that is. And it's a Good Seats Still Available, our curious little podcast, our little uh, exploration each and every week into what used to be in professional sports. Thank you for coming by. Uh, We know the world is uh, seemingly crumbling around you out there, and uh, we offer you a brief but hopefully interesting respite uh, as we continue to tackle all of our uh, important issues around teams and leagues, defunctness, uh, relocation, things otherwise forgotten in the realm of pro sports. Uh, We love doing it for you every week, and um, no time like the present then to uh, take a pause from all the world's ills and kind of, you know... uh, rewind back to maybe more uh, of a simpler and gentler and more intriguing time. Uh, And this week uh, we uh, are ecstatic to go back into the Continental Basketball Association. Yeah. Is it pro? Of course it was pro, but you know, arguably not as a top tier, certainly as the NBA uh, or other, if you will, top tier pro leagues. But as we've talked about in uh, some previous episodes, in particular episode number, geez, what was it? Number 118 uh, with our uh, friend of the show, David Levine, Uh, When we talked about his book, Life on the Rim, uh, and uh, in particular, we talked about uh, a team known as the Albany Patroons, uh, and in particular, uh, as well, narrowing it down even further, the 1988-89 season, arguably probably the the Patroons' last sort of best season, uh, under the tutelage of George Carl, uh, Hall of Fame basketball coach extraordinaire he and that was one great and interesting season, uh, and, and that's a, a book well, well, well worth finding and reading, uh, Life on the Rim by David Levine. If you uh, want to buy a copy of that book, by all means, it's available uh, through our link from our episode number 118 at com. Aha, but I digress. The Albany Patroons, which is going to be the uh, the topic more generally this week, uh, with our guest this week, Brendan Casey, and you'll understand why Brendan's interesting uh, to do so is that the Albany Patroons were arguably, and maybe not so arguably, the one of the more successful and certainly long-lasting teams in CBA history. And, and as you know from our previous discussions, the CBA uh, had a, a sort of a long and, and winding road of history, started dating back way to the 1940s when it was known as the Eastern Basketball League, uh, and various iterations of its CBA-ness. Uh, but uh, for a uh, a very interesting period of time, 1982 to 1992, uh, the Albany Patroons were uh, absolutely uh, a phenomenon in the CBA and absolutely in the, uh, the little town there, hardly a town, it's a sort of a nice sized city, the capital city of New York State, Albany, New York. And we get into all those uh, interesting times and uh, championships, uh, personalities, and we're talking about people like Phil Jackson who arguably got his, not his start, but certainly the, uh, I guess the the, the fuel of uh, what became his rocket ship ride into the NBA, the Chicago Bulls, immediately thereafter, as a matter of fact. And there was also the coaching stylings of Bill Musselman, uh, who came in after the uh, the Phil Jackson years and, and took the Patroons to a second CBA championship in a completely different style, much more fiery and, and, and competitive not that Phil Jackson was competitive in his own Zen-like way, but Musselman, you know, a complete, complete opposite in terms of uh, intensity and uh, willingness to win, if you will, at all costs. 
his son, Eric Musselman, uh, many of you may know, of course, following in his dad's footsteps, arguably in a much more kinder and gentler fashion, but uh, no less successful uh, for sure. Uh, and also uh, the years uh, that followed that, too, uh, leading up to uh, the George Carl years, uh, the tremendous record of the uh, 1988-89 season that we uh, talked about a little bit with uh, with David Levine uh, in our previous episode. Uh, but, you know, an interesting arc, uh, this this patroons in their original incarnation in the CBA, a story of, of course, as we talked about earlier, uh, players coming up and players going down. Same with coaches, same with referees, uh, same with administrators. Uh, but also it's a story of uh, something we've talked about, uh, certainly in previous episodes of a city, in this case, Albany, a midsize uh, city, uh, the capital city, if you will, of New York State. Uh, that uh, seeking uh, its own sort of affirmation uh, as a pro slash major league type uh, city, uh, civic pride, all that stuff, uh, arenas, uh, infrastructure. That is absolutely part of the story of the Patroons, uh, having uh, been successful from the get go with uh, their cozy and very loud and cramped and old style Washington Avenue Armory, which still still around today and even houses the uh, current version of the Patroons uh, in uh, minor league basketball. Uh, but, you know, they, they getting success and uh, helping basically fuel the building of what was then known as the Knickerbocker Arena, a 15, 16,000 seat uh, stadium that, uh, you know, was aiming to not only house the Patroons and their success, give them more room to breathe, uh, but also maybe some some major league hockey in the form of the NHL, et cetera. Uh, you know, and those dreams can come and go. And, and we get into that part of the story, too. Uh, it's all fascinating and it's all uh, courtesy of our guest this week, Brendan Casey. Brendan runs a uh, uh, an ad and uh, promotion agency called the Upside Collective uh, in Albany, and uh, you'll get a sense of of how uh, the movie uh, that he and his team put together called the Minor League Mecca, uh, and that's really kind of uh, what we're going to get into. It's a f- terrific documentary film. Uh, and uh, we'll get into all the sort of promotional elements of when it's coming out and stuff. But if you go to the minorleaguemecca.com, uh, you will learn all about it uh, as well as uh, when it's uh, going to be further released. Uh, and it's a tremendous excuse uh, to get into the uh, the deeper and richer history of the 10 year original run of the Albany Patroons of the uh, long ago yet uh, sadly missed Continental Basketball Association, the CBA, and we're going to get into more of that uh, in just a moment's time uh, with our pal Brendan Casey coming up. Uh, Before we get there, we want to say uh, hello and welcome, of course, to one of our tremendous and uh, longtime sponsors. And of course, that's OldSchoolShirts.com in Cincinnati. P.F. Wilson, we we bow humbly in your general direction. You and your fine cast of uh, merry folks. Uh, always uh, good to us and uh, and will also, of course, be good to you, our beloved listeners. Uh, with a promo code, uh, Good Seats, when you go to oldschoolshirts.com and use that promo code, Good Seats, and get and enjoy 10% off all of your purchases. It's, as you well know now, uh, if you've been a longtime listener to the show, the place to get perhaps the greatest assemblage of pop culture t-shirts, uh, not only in the realm of sports, but also Various forms of pop culture, whether it's an old radio station, perhaps a uh, an arena uh, of your maybe there was a uh, not a, a team, of course, or a league, but maybe also uh, a a mall, perhaps a store or a bar, perhaps, a, uh, you know, some other sort of facet of uh, of one's 
uh, memories from uh, from growing up. Well, OldSchoolShirts.com, you'll be uh, you'll be shocked and amazed at all the great stuff that they have, including uh, and apropos of this show, the CBA Basketball League T-shirt. It's it's beautifully created. Uh, it's uh, wonderfully uh, designed, and uh, it's got that great red, white, and blue CBA logo that most of you from the uh, 70s, 80s, and 90s might remember. And uh, what a tremendous way to celebrate this episode uh, with our pal Brendan Casey than to uh, get yourself your very own Continental Basketball Association t-shirt with the official and original CBA logo. You can find that in many, many more items to choose from. All great stuff from OldSchoolShirts.com. And again, please enjoy that promo code savings when you use that promo code that we like to give to you often. And that's good seats. Write it down, use it often, and uh, we appreciate you doing so. P.F. Wilson and his team appreciate you, you checking them out as well. And uh, again, our thanks mightily to OldSchoolShirts.com for their continued sponsorship of this little show. And uh, we uh, look forward to now unveiling to you our great conversation with our new pal, Brendan Casey, as we get into more of the story of the Albany Patroons, the original version thereof, from the old CBA, and it's hoops time. Here we go. Please enjoy. Well, all right, before we get into the the, 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 the matter at hand, why don't you sure. give a little bit of background about sort of you know, what your sort of professional life is and maybe sort yep. of the the intersection of this Patroon story that uh, that excited you in the first place and, and convinced you that this is worth sort of making a documentary and then some about. Yeah, so I grew up as uh, a sports fan. I played sports as a kid. My father was a big basketball fan. You know, he played in college, so I played as a kid recreationally as I got older, just followed sports, basketball, baseball, football, and um, just something I loved. So just like so many kids, right, you know, it's it's a passion that you have and grew up loving sports. Um, fast forward into my career, I had been working at uh, an advertising agency and ended up acquiring the firm from the previous owners. Um, and when we acquired the firm, we rebranded it to Upside Collective, and that's the current firm. And we also created a video production department and brought that in-house. Um, and that was just to provide video services for our existing clients, nonprofits, small businesses, uh, government entities, um, and just to supplement our other advertising pursuits that we were doing. Um, so having that as something that we were doing as a company, we purchased more equipment, hired more folks. And, you know, I was always looking for things to do that were fun, but also helped us get better at our jobs. And I said, you know what, um, being in Albany, New York, I knew the history of the Albany Patroons, the basketball team and the Continental Basketball Association. I said, you know, that'd be a cool project. And I didn't even know what that meant, but I figured I could get some interviews with some of the folks that were involved with the team. So the initial thought was, let's just do some interviews with some of these guys and we'll at least have some short clips to release on social media through Upside Collective and it'll garner some local interest in our firm, show people that we're doing uh, video now and there's a built-in audience of sports fans and former Albany Patroons fans. So that was the initial idea for how we kind of got this thing rolling. Well, And this was, this was about when, Circa? So this is probably 
six, I probably had the idea seven years ago. We probably started it initially five, maybe five years ago, probably did the first filming, the first session four years ago. So very slow moving at a glacial pace because this is something we weren't getting paid for. It was a passion project, if you will. Um, and we were fitting it in between paying jobs, doing the research on my end at nights on the weekends. And I have, I had, I have two young kids. I had two toddlers at the time, um, busy guy. And so I just kind of fit it in where we could, and we would, you know, get at work at this whenever we could work on it. So it wasn't like a major production where you scheduled three months and you just focused on that. It kind of, we fit it in where we needed to. So how, how, uh, give us a sense of that, the, the reaction to these things, how is it sort of being, I guess, uh, sort of consumed and, uh, and recognized. And then when did you, when was the, and what was the tipping point that kind of said, you know, maybe I have something more substantial here? You know, when I mentioned it to people that knew if you were in Albany, in this market, it's a small market. We're close enough to New York. We're close enough to Boston where everybody wants to be. We want to be a major market, but we're never going to, right? It's a smaller market. Um, you know, it's just far enough away where you can still drive to see the Yankees or the Knicks or the Celtics. And, you know, we're we're a small market. So here, as I would talk about it, people had fond memories of the Patroons and they remembered going to those games um, because it, at that time it felt like this was something that the city had that was going to be as close as it was going to get to the major leagues. So when I mentioned that I was doing these interviews, everyone had a story to tell locally. Someone had a connection to the team or they remember going to games or seeing Phil Jackson at a bar. So Locally, as I mentioned it, people were very supportive of it, and they would inevitably have memorabilia, or they knew someone that I needed to talk to because their uncle knew this guy, and he was at this game, and you know all these crazy stories. So it was very, very good response locally. So I said, I know there's a built-in audience of fans that would like this on the local level. Um, and we started out by filming at the Washington Avenue Armory, which is a U.S. Army armory from the 19. 19- 20s, I believe. Um, and that's where the Patroons played. It's just, it's a great place to play basketball, to watch basketball. It has a history, um, very unique architecture. And we shot there and just captured the essence of this old gym and did some interviews with the team founder and president, the general manager, and one of the best players in team history. So we spent a day interviewing these guys, getting footage and just talking about the team. Um, and that was a great day and it felt like everything went well and the stuff looked good. We have a great team of people that I work with here and we brought on some other friends of ours to help us. So we used really high end camera equipment, red cameras. Um, we brought in audio people. We said, if we're going to do this, even if it's going to be small, let's do it right. So we're proud of it. So at the end of the day, we looked at the footage, we watched some of the interviews and it came out great. So we cut together some short clips and short stories that they told and they were funny. They were poignant dramatic, historic. And we said, this is great stuff. So, um, at that point I reached out to, um, a writer for the New York post named Mark Berman. Um, as I knew that he had covered the Patroons when he was, uh, first a writer at, for the Albany times union in the early eighties, Mark was interested in it cause he covered the team and he had a history with them. And he put me in touch with Charlie Rosen, Charlie Rosen was Phil Jackson's assistant when Phil was here in Albany. 
and Charlie says, oh, yeah, come down, come down. He lives near Woodstock, New York, and the cat goes, come down, I'll talk to you. We go down, we meet Charlie, one of the nicest guys you'll ever meet, uh, very intense, and when you meet him in person, much different than how he was as a coach. But we talk with him, it goes great. We do an interview with Charlie. He's just like a wealth of knowledge of all things basketball, specifically the Patroons, because he was there. And he, as we're packing up to leave his house after the interview, he says, would you want to talk to Phil? meaning Phil Jackson. And I said, yeah, oh yeah, of course. But, you know, but I'm trying to downplay it because I don't want Charlie to think that I'm using him to get to Phil because we weren't. And I didn't think it would happen. He says, okay, well, I'll call him and I'll put a word in and, you know, we'll see what happens. So we drive back to Albany and I'm thinking, you know, it's nice of Charlie to offer, but I don't really expect this to come to fruition. He's just saying that or Phil won't want to be involved. The next morning, my phone rings. It's Charlie. He says, I talked to Phil. He wants to see you. I said, when? He says, Tuesday. <laughs> and it's probably Thursday, right? So I, at this point, now I know, okay, this is going to probably go somewhere bigger than just a few social media videos because I'm going to get to Phil Jackson, who at the time was the president of the Knicks. And he was uh, working down in the city and in Westchester County in New York. Um, so this is like a Thursday afternoon. I'm realizing now in like four or five days, I have to go down and interview Phil Jackson. So I hurry and I go to the library and I buy, or I, you know, I rent all, all Phil's books, all, all that, he, that he's written about himself and books about him. So I spend four straight days reading to try to make my notes and not only what was he doing at Albany, but his whole career. So I'm up to speed. We run down to uh, Westchester County to the Knicks training facility and we interview Phil and, um, it goes great. He gives us an hour and a half of his time. Couldn't have been nicer. Had great stories to tell. And at that point, that's when I knew, okay, it's going to get easier to interview people that we want to interview because we've already talked to Phil. And this is something that fans are going to get behind and going to want to watch. So what is it? Uh, so that's it's probably a great sort of pivot, right? Because what is it about this that Phil said already yes to? Because it, it's it's obviously... As you get a sense by watching this, and it's, it's fantastically filmed, by the way. It's, it's really very well. Oh, thank you. You could tell the high quality and, and, and the interviews. And But Phil, in this, in this, I don't want to give anything away, but he's he's not only relaxed and nostalgic and and, and, and pinpoint accuracy with the with with the memories, but he just you could just see the sort of glint in his eye about sort of what he remembers about this arguably special time in his career. Yeah, you know, I it's a couple. I think there's probably a a couple points to answer that question. But, you know, when we went in there the first morning, we get down to the training facility and the Knicks are notoriously, I guess, difficult with the media on some level, right? If you follow them in the New York Post, no the New York Daily News. About. No, of course <laughs> <laughs> So, you know, and even today with the, with the current owner, uh, where things are. So we go down there and they were great to me. They were very accommodating and they were very helpful. But you get down there, and it's a very formal environment. And they say, well, Phil's in a, he's in a meeting right now. He's going to come in. You can wait here. He might give you 15 minutes. He needs a special chair because of his hip surgery and his knees. And I wasn't nervous. Now I got nervous because these people are shuffling in and out. You feel as if you're, um, you know, in the Oval Office or you're, you know, in Buckingham Palace, and you're waiting for someone to come in to meet them. And it's this very, you know, high-pressure situation. So he comes in, and he's very serious and you know, doesn't seem to really be connecting with us and enjoying it. I'm like, oh, this is going to just be a dud and we'll be here for 15 minutes. And we sit down and as soon as the camera turns on, the lights come on, the first couple of questions, he's kind of feeling his way out. But as he started talking about 
the specifics of the team and the players and the people, he kind of really just lit up and relaxed. And I think it's a couple of things. One, he's still very good friends with Charlie Rose, and these guys are now lifelong friends, and they've had each other's back and supported each other. So because Charlie asked as a favor to him, I think Phil was inclined to do it. And Charlie was also involved. He's in the doc. Um, but two, once you're talking about it, I mean, right, this is, as anyone likes to reminisce or talk about, you know, glory days, it's like the Bruce Springsteen song. You know, I mean, you think about the days that have gone by and when you were coming up and you look back fondly. Now, certainly Phil didn't have the money, the fame or any of those things, but I think he was a young man. His children were young and you look back with really fond memories. So it's something that was a different topic of conversation. And I think he's probably been asked 50,000 questions about Michael Jordan, 50,000 questions about Kobe Bryant, Shaquille O'Neal, but far fewer questions about what type of offense he was running in Albany or a playoff series against Toronto uh, or Bill Musselman. So um, it's almost like you're, connecting with someone on a level that only their friends or family would know about. And it was really interesting for him to share that. And, you know, he got into some, there's some poignant answers and a couple of things we didn't even include in the doc about talking about driving up from Woodstock to the Albany Armory with his family. And it would be Sunday afternoon games. His kids would put the back seat down in the wagon and they'd bring blankets and they'd sleep and he would listen to Prairie Home Companion. And so you hear that and you think he's just another, another guy. He's another dad with a family raising his kids and, and doing these things. And he had those memories. That's when you really saw the smile come out, even more so than talking about players or defenses or how they won a championship here. Well, but but a, but a, uh, a hugely representative uh, person in this story, right? Because it was, you know, he was the coach the, the first year of this franchise. And, and, and what a year that was. I think it was special not only for him, I guess, just sort of as his, his career was kind of sort of getting a toehold. But, yep. you know, it also was sort of a... a magical slash special time because it came to Albany, this team, his coaching, the 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 team that he assembled, this sort of ragtag CBA, which we may want to get into. Uh, it kind of was sort of a, a perfect storm of a start for sure. Yeah. I mean, it really did. It really did raise the, the level of um, what this team was going to mean to Albany, what the league was going to be for the next 10 years as a feeder league to the NBA um, you know, it was transformative in his career, and you, you realize in the doc some of the decisions that were made, the phone calls that happened, and you know what would have happened for his career had he not signed on with Albany. Now he might have been just as successful as a coach, but probably not. You know, a lot, a lot of success is luck. A lot of it is, is hard work. A lot of it is just being in the right place at the right time. And I think he would probably admit that. Certainly would always be successful, but it became really the jumping-off point for him and then pave the way for the Patroons as an organization to have success on the court and at the box office here in Albany for nearly a decade. And, you know, success followed that. So he was able to bring a championship here. The fans rallied around him. And, you know, we're talking about a time, this is 1983, 84, 84, 85. He was here through 86, 87. You know, there's, we're stuck in the digital age now and we can't barely, you know, recall what it was like before there was 16 NBA games on at night and you could watch any college game and you can get the big 10 network. You can get the ACC network. You can watch everything, you know, back then, especially in a market like Albany, you would have gotten the Knicks games, maybe the Nets games. And that was about it. And there would be a game of the week on NBC or CBS. So 
to have a team playing locally, it was the event. It was a place to be. It was a place to be seen. It was the place to go. And the fans rallied behind it because it was probably much a, a much a more social atmosphere. People wanted to go out. They sold a lot of beer at the games and people go out to dinner and have drinks. And now everyone has flat screens and it's harder and harder to sell tickets, especially at the minor league level, right? So the pro teams still do well, but this was a different time. So everyone really got behind Phil and it, you know, it supported him. They liked him because he was an ex Nick, um, but he wasn't Phil Jackson. Like we think about today, he was well, just kind of developing that. Yeah. Let's, let's put, let's put Albany and the capital region sort of in, uh, in, in context then, right? So obviously you're, you're, you're speaking to a media time that was quite different. Cable television was really kind of just kind of getting, getting going. And the CSPN thing was kind of still in the proving out phase that, you know, sports could be a 24 seven, 365 kind of endeavor and and ESPN obviously became very uh, big part of the CBA in in the latter part of the of the decade but but Albany you know you've already sort of talked about sort of it's uh, it's kind of a, a quintessential sort of mid market kind of city in between lots of sort of bigger cities uh, regionally nearby uh, but what about this CBA thing a minor league if you will a feeder league to the to the NBA its own sort of checkered history it, it almost feels like it was a uh, that Albany and the CBA were kind of a convenient marriage, if you will, both looking for maybe different things out of the uh, arrangement. Yeah, I think so. Um, you know, the CBA was originally the Eastern League, and it was a league that was founded, I think, in 1945 or 46. It actually predated the NBA by a year. And it was a league that was in Allentown, Pennsylvania, um, Scranton, Wilkesbury, areas like that in northeastern Pennsylvania and it was really a weekend league where you know guys would hold down jobs and they would play um and it was really good competition ex college players some former NBA players um I think Paul Arizon who played for the Philadelphia Warriors played in the league so it was a good league but it was just a regional league like a, a local auto parts store might sponsor a team or a hotel and you know they would play um but just on the you know on the weekends at night not a huge thing and um, in high school gyms. Um, Jim Drucker, who became the commissioner during the 1980s of the CBA and had wild success there and went on to run the Arena Football League and do a lot in sports media, he bought the league. He's the son of a former NBA referee, and he understood basketball, um, was close with David Stern, former commissioner of the NBA. And um, Jim Drucker, just a brilliant guy, a brilliant um, leader, and understanding how to build a business and really wanted to grow this. So he took it from, you know, a, a league of weekend players, former pros or former college players playing in front of high school audiences to kind of build it out. Now, Albany was one of the first teams to break out of that mold of you're playing in a high school gym to now they have, you know, not a huge arena, but an arena that could fit three, 3,500, 4,000 if it's packed and they're drawing fans, right? They're drawing thousands of fans to these games. So it gave him the taste that this could work, and now I can market this to other potential market owners. Um, and that did occur. What Albany was looking for was something that they could develop the city around and develop uh, support around, and also something that was going to be a rallying cry for economic development. Now, we get into this in the dock, and anyone that's not from the area won't be familiar, but a gentleman by the name of Jim Coyne was the Albany County executive at the time. And part of his 
leadership in government was to bring sports and entertainment to the people. He calls himself a populist in the film, and I think he truly was. Um, but he wanted to bring things that were going to bring people downtown, keep people in Albany County for events, sports, concerts. And he wisely knew that, you know, on some level, people would go out and go have drinks, you know, go have dinner, spend some money and just create an atmosphere that people felt like there was things happening. So he wanted to bring Albany in and get a team kind of as a test to see how that would that would unfold ultimately as a way to create a larger civic center in the city, which is still here to this day. So there was a reason for both to want each other, and it really worked out right away. And, you know, the, the Patroons were here for a little over 10 years. If you think about minor league sports, I don't know the stats on this, but a 10-year run for a team in one city in a minor league, you know, outfit is pretty good. That's probably beating the odds. Most of these teams are here for a year or two years. They move on to another market because somebody goes bankrupt or somebody's going to pay them better. But they were here for ten over 10 solid years and did well. Well, no, I mean, it, it's it's a it's a huge testament, right? And, and I, I guess maybe almost sort of the uh, – is emblematic. Well, I don't know if it's emblematic, but it certainly is – it certainly was a standout uh, uh, franchise and relationship, shall we say, between a league that was, you know, continued to kind of trying to figure out what its uh, reason for being uh, was, as well as, frankly, a, a, a city and a region – uh, like as we've talked about in many of these conversations we've had over the last couple of years, regardless of sport or, or era, who want to kind of not necessarily punch above their weight, but certainly get into that sort of uh, that spotlight or the aura around the perception of a big league, major league team of some sort, some sport that essentially connotes with it, if you will, major league or top tier status. Yeah. You know, it's definitely, um, it is emblematic of what this whole story is about, right? I mean, and you can look at it across the board from coaches that want to be, coaches that have aspirations and goals and dreams, right? Players that have aspirations and goals and dreams. Um, even the referees, they wanted to get to the NBA. Now, what does the market collectively want? What does Albany want? What, is, what does the fan base want? They have the goal and dream of, having a championship and supporting that and going to a game with a, with a good crowd and kids can have fun and adults can have fun and getting to know the players and feeling like there's some activity, especially in the Northeast. I mean, you guys are in, you're in Chicago in, in that area. You know what it's like in the winter. You got to have something to get you through, right? So this is an activity where people can get behind it. They really embrace it. And it's something to focus on in the colder, darker months. It's the same thing. I've seen, um, Jim Beheim talk about Syracuse basketball and people say Syracuse has got the worst weather in the country, right? It snows, it's got lake effect snow and, you know, it's just miserable. And he says, well, for, for four months, but that's when we play basketball and, and the rest of the year we play golf. So kind of the same thing here. The fans wanted something more. They wanted to feel like they had something to hold on to. And, and um, Tim Layden, one of the writers from Sports Illustrated, he gets into that in the film that really it was the market had been yearning for this for probably a decade. There were all these rumors of would an NHL team come or an IHL team come or an AHL or another minor league team. And finally it happened. And, you know, people did rally. They did rally behind it and they got into it. All right. So before we sort of get into some of the uh, the the, uh, the teams and the, the successes on the court and stuff, because there, there are quite some, uh, some memories there for sure, I, I want to sort of circle on this sort of uh, uh, Jim Coyne uh, scenario here because – I guess I want to juxtapose the sort of the intimacy and maybe you can give our audience a bit of a sense of sort of what the environment was in the armory. And then 
almost sort of becoming so much of a, if you will, success that it actually acted as fuel for the designs around creating uh, an arena that in 1990 launched as a Knickerbocker that actually still exists today, but arguably shows a bit of sort of maybe reaching a little too fast, a little too soon, or, or you know, not being able to sort of achieve those, I guess, big city, big league dreams, perhaps. Yep. And that's, you know, this is kind of, it's one of those wrinkles to the story that, as you know, you unfold it and it's very interesting, right? So, you know, Jim's, Jim's whole idea was to kind of bring in minor league sports and the Patroons were really a, a pilot program to see if the, if the area would support it. And if it did, it was going to be more proof for him to beat the drum to build a civic center in Albany County. And it ended up being in downtown Albany. Um, but initially, they played at the armory. Again, as I said, it's a, it was a, a U.S. Army armory um, where they stored armaments in the basement and they did training. And then the, US, uh, the New York National Guard operated out of there. They rented it to the Albany Patroons. So if you approach the armory, it's a brick building. It's gorgeous architecture from the turn of the century. But you go inside and it's kind of echoey. There's a musty smell. It, the lighting's not the greatest. Um, but if you put a few thousand fans in there, you know, you, it's almost got a Hoosiers-esque vibe to it, an old Boston Garden vibe where the crowd is right on the court and it feels bigger and it feels louder than it is. And like I said, you know, the beer was flowing. It was a, a party. It was a big atmosphere. So it became not only a great home court advantage for the team, but a great place for fans to go and watch games, Um, you know, from kids to local businesses, everybody had tickets. It was the thing to do because at the time uh, the college teams in Albany, Siena, which is a D one basketball team playing in the Mac in the Northeast against teams like Manhattan and Iona. um, They were still, I guess, Yes, they probably had just gone D1. They were playing in the NEC, a very small conference, and they were playing on campus, and they weren't really drawing other than a, you know local and alumni. The university at Albany was D3, and nobody really went to their game. So there was really no basketball. Um, you know, There was no basketball team for people to get behind unless they were somehow connected to Siena. So it was really the only show in town. And you know, people did. They got behind it, and the team played well. Now, if they came in and... They continued to lose um, the first season, and they didn't hire Phil. You know, after they had kind of uh, an iffy start. If they lost, I think that the fans would have lost interest, and they would have probably just folded in a year or two. But because they won, um, as, as anything else, you know, people got behind it, um, and it, it drew well. They did. They did well. You know, every game wasn't a sellout, and. I think it was hard for them to break even because it's minor league sports. It wasn't a profit-making uh, entity, but the fans came and the team won, and that's what people really cared about. It was also intimidating, though, right, for other teams coming in? I mean, there was sort of a, a yeah, home, it was. Home, home field, home court advantage. You know, it was a place where I think opponents wanted to play, right? Guys at that level, these guys are pros. They want to win. And they get jacked up for a game when there's there's a large crowd large crowd there. But when it's the fourth quarter and that large crowd is on their feet on top of you, that's when mistakes can happen and people get frustrated. 
and some of these guys, you know, they were playing in uh, Sarasota, Florida, or Tampa Bay with the Thrillers. They're still playing in a high school gym. There might be a couple hundred people there, right? And it's some retirees from that are in the, down to Florida for the winter. It's not the environment that you have in the Armory. So this is more along the lines of what you would have seen at a college game, right, at that time. So they came in here. They got jacked up for it. But it got the patroons, you know, jacked, and that's why they always won at home, and they always had winning records um, because the fans came out to support it, and it, and it was a great home court advantage. Yeah, and also like the, they never turned the heat on because if they turned the heat on too much, the roof would leak and the snow would melt and fall through on the court, and it would it would it would melt on the court. Um, so it was freezing in there, and they had to share the restrooms with the public, so the players would go in to the showers after the game and the, and the, the fans would be used, the men would be using the, the urinal next to the players getting out of the shower. So if the fan, you know, same thing at halftime. So it was kind of this crazy environment. Um, Tim Layden called it an anarchic environment and he's just a tremendous writer. And really you think about an anarchic environment for a basketball game, it's going to be a good home court advantage. Well, indeed, and but you, you said so when you sort of go through sort of the uh, the championship of the first season, right? And there's some. Uh, I think you've got a uh, guy, a team photographer, uh, that you uh, yep. have in the film, and he shows yeah. a, a couple towards of shots. It. Yeah, a couple of shots there, and and one of which is kind of just showing you, you know, despite the fact that uh, you know the crowd seems like uh, it's so intimidating, you're on top of the court, and and it seems like it's just one, you know, uh, if uh, one uh, false move short of of explosion, I guess. Is but you, the one thing about sort of the uh, the championship uh, celebration there is it almost sort of seems symbiotic between the players and the coaches and the crowd. I mean, everybody, you know, it was just one big celebration without sort of any fear or, or now maybe this is also a throwback to another time. Fair enough. Yeah, but, I mean, I think that's part of it. You know, we're, we're, you're going back to a time when you know some of the concerns we have now about security were not the same as they as you know as they were then. Um, but I think it was also that the fans had embraced these guys. You know, this is the thing where they would go out for wings and beer with the players and with the coaches after the game, after every game, right? So they got to know them. Fans, fans hosted players. They'd have them come over and do laundry at their house. Some of these players would live with fans, right? Because, you know, they'd be coming in and out on flights. They'd be here one day. They'd be going up to the NBA or they'd be they'd be cut. So there became a community of boosters that got behind these guys. Fans would be in the locker room with the team. So it, it, there was really a deep connection and a bond that still exists to this day. I talked to some of these guys, you know, this is now, you know, 35, 40 years later, depending on when they played here. Um, someone like Scott Brooks, who came and played later in the eighties, he's still great friends with some of the folks from here in Albany and gets them tickets to see the the wizards play when they come into town, whether it's in, in Florida or in, in, in at, at Madison square garden against the Knicks. So, you know, they really bonded with the community. So when they won that first championship, of course, everyone was going to be out on the court again, like that college celebration, when a college team ups, upset somebody at home, everyone's out, everyone's celebrating and looks just totally relaxed and enjoying the moment. And then they're all in the locker room and then they're out all out for the, the parade and the rally downtown afterwards. So um, it really was a community team. And I think that's why the success kind of continued. I love the fact how uh, in this movie you kind of, and maybe it's almost uh, conveniently sort of set up by the, the history of the, of the team during this 10 year, 11 year period uh, by itself. But obviously for every, for all the stories around sort of the beginning, the inception of the team, 
the location of it, uh, Phil Jackson and, and putting his uh, his early career imprint on this team. Uh, it was. It's also similarly interesting how how the segue goes from the coaching styling, shall we say, of Phil Jackson to the seemingly diametrically different coaching stylings of a one uh, Bill Musselman. Uh, maybe yeah. a little bit of uh, insight into that story because Musselman not only put his firm, uh, firm literally, uh, a grip and imprint on this team when he came about, but he was also kind of a, a known entity uh, yeah. prior yeah. and not necessarily in the most positive light with Albany fans. Yeah, I mean, look, this is interviewing Phil Jackson and getting him to be part of this documentary is one of the most important things. And unfortunately, Bill Musselman passed away, you know, I think over a decade ago now and wasn't available. We talked to his son, uh, Eric, who's a tremendously successful coach. But the stories about Bill Musselman and the Bill Musselman sequence within the film, I think, in personally, is, is my favorite part of it because the you would think this guy is a character that was written uh, you know, by an author, and it's not. He's a real guy. So when Phil came in in 82, 83, he finished the first season on, the, on a high note successfully. They won the title in his second, in his second year, 83, 84. After that, 84, 85, 85, 86, he couldn't beat Bill Musselman's teams, right? Um, I think even 86, 87. So three years in a row, Phil was still here after winning a title. Great teams, always competed, always in the playoffs, but they couldn't get past uh, Sarasota or the Tampa Bay Thrillers with Bill Musselman. So, you know, Bill ended up winning three consecutive titles and not always beating Phil, but became that nemesis that Phil couldn't beat. So the Albany fans hated this guy, and that's what we get into in the doc. He's the perfect villain to hate, and they really just kind of, he became, you know, the, the enemy number one, public enemy number one. It's interesting when Phil decides it's time to, to move on, he kind of steps back from Albany knowing that something else will come up for him. But he doesn't. it's not as if he got cherry-picked and he was with the Bulls or he was going to stay with Albany. He stopped and he went down to the unemployment office, which I think is an interesting side note because you can't imagine that guy going to the unemployment office at any point. But he gets picked up with the Bulls, and the Albany then turns to Bill Musselman because Jim Coyne says, well, this guy's beating us every year. The best thing we should do is hire him. And Bill wanted to come to Albany because it was the top of the CBA. He loved the fans. He loved the energy. He loved the environment and the fact that it was a winning tradition. Um, but you said, you know, Bill's, you know, uh, his background and the intensity and being a known entity, not only within the CBA, you got to remember, he was coaching from a very young age in his early 20s, you know, at the college level at the high college level at the university of Minnesota, he coached uh, Dave Winfield um, and some other really successful players at the university of Minnesota, but had some uh, bumps and bruises along the way with how he handled himself and how he handled his team. So very controversial guy, but came in here and just kind of blew the doors off the league. Um, You know, wanted to go undefeated. Um, I think they had six losses the whole season and was just this kind of drill sergeant, really militant guy, but you know, he had the players operating on a level that nobody had seen in the CBA. I mean, they were, you know, you could call them a very bad NBA team and that's probably what they would have been, but they were hands down above and beyond anybody what they had seen in the CBA. So, you know, Phil being this very Zen, he wasn't Zen then they didn't call him the Zen master, but he was developing that persona very laid back, 
understanding how a team interacts on a personal level, how emotions play into it, how to get the best out of players and get them prepared to win, you know, very kind of uh, intellectual, I guess. And Bill is just like, we're going to blow your doors off. It's going to be intense. I'm going to bring in the best players and we're just going to crush you and wanting to compete so bad. They both wanted to compete. And I think they kind of loved competing against each other because you couldn't have had two more different types of coaching styles just from even the way they looked, right? They looked so different. So um, when they brought Bill in and Phil was gone, the fans turned around 180 degrees and loved him and they, and they loved Musselman and all of a sudden he was the guy in Albany. So, um, you know, really another interesting turn in this story as that occurred and both play, both coaches won championships here in the one year that Musselman was here they won a title and had the best record in the CBA that had, had ever been uh, played out to that time. Well, also interesting personifications of, I would suggest, the league itself, right? Because, and now I'm going to sort of project here, but you could make the argument that, you know, coaches like Phil Jackson were more about, you know, developing players for the inevitable call up or, you know, most of the players kind of wanted to kind of get to that next level at some point. And, to your point, you know, getting the best out of his team and his players and the interactions and and some of those are good habits and and things to to get down pat so that the call up and uh, hopefully a stick and some success at the you know for that big cup of coffee at the at the at the NBA level would yeah. sort of come. Yet Musselman, right, kind of the inverse of that, right, because he's a, a, arguably a you know a former NBA coach with experience and some level of success. Maybe there's a, a a consternation or a bit of a chip on his shoulder being back, if you will, down in the CBA and, and having this, as you get in the documentary, this sort of prolific uh, knowledge and, and pipeline into all the various player movements of the NBA, you know, it almost seemed like he wanted to stock his CBA team with as many castoffs of quality he could get from the NBA, right? Almost a completely different approach to winning games, these two. It was exactly as you as you put it. They're diametrically opposed. Um, his son Eric, he recalled that you know Bill said, having been with the Cavaliers, right? I said he had been with Minnesota as a young man and then had success there and bumped around and coached in the AB in the ABA, and then he was with the Cavaliers in the early '80s and felt like he got a raw deal and got fired. Um, so his whole goal was to get back to the NBA, which is what a lot of these players want to do. And he told Eric, he told the Suns that I'm going to win. So I'm going to win so much that they can't ignore me. I'm going to win so big that they can't ignore me. And he did right. So they, he won, ended up winning four straight titles in the CBA, but by a different approach than Phil would have taken, you know, Phil would take the players that he got, teach them to play together, develop their skill sets and, and win it that way. Because of Bill's connections globally in basketball, not only with the NBA, not only with college, but overseas, he was able to get the best players available always before anyone else could. And there's also whispers and stories that there was probably some money being paid that shouldn't have been to these guys that Bill was doing and Phil may not have been. Um, this is just what I've heard, right? There's no evidence of it, but, you know, if there's smoke, there's probably fire. So he was doing whatever he needed to do to bring these players in and win. Um, and I don't think 
you know, it was the way that Phil was going to approach it. And I think it was hard for him to kind of overcome that. That's why, you know, Musselman's team were beating Albany consistently, but you flip the script and the next year, you know, again, Bill comes in and just brings in all these players. He brought like the, the epitome of this is him bringing in Michael Ray Richardson, who was facing a, a suspension from the NBA for cocaine use. You know, he was a star player at Montana. He was drafted by the Knicks, played for the Knicks, uh, and, was you know on the on par with all stars you know he was going to be a the next magic johnson on that level but his career was derailed by drugs and you know muscleman gobbled him up right away and brought him on the team so that shows you what he was trying to do now from a fan's perspective and the people in albany you know they didn't care everybody wanted that you wanted bigger names you wanted the better players. I mean, you wanted people playing that NBA quality ball and they got it. So, you know, you, you watch some of the, the footage of the 87, 88 championship series where Musselman is coaching his team of, you know, whether it's NBA castoffs or guys that are going to the NBA next, you know, there's probably 4,500 or 5,000 people in the armory and it's only, you know, rated for probably 3,000 or 3,500 by fire code because the fans got behind it so much because it was just a great team. Yeah, there's a uh, there's a uh, a little part of the uh, in the in the documentary with uh, Tony Campbell uh, who went on to play for the Lakers and then obviously yep. uh, with uh, with the Timberwolves when Musselman wound up going there, which I you know thought uh, spoke to me on a couple of different levels. Number one was sort of obviously the fact that as as uh, Musselman wound up, he he was quite loyal and his players seemed to be quite loyal to him, and he seemed to not forget some of the quality players that he had on his team in Albany when. Uh, he got the call back up, if you will, to Minnesota, and a bunch of those players ultimately going to join him there at the pro level, at the NBA level. But also, I thought it was really interesting, Campbell kind of said, after sort of getting used to the idea that he was in the CBA, which was a little bit of a tough adjustment, he also recognized that as he sort of went along, he he was really enjoying his time. He enjoyed playing for for coach, and, and he almost kind of sort of, you know, didn't want to leave Albany in some respect, and kind of maybe took his time a little bit with some of the offers that he was uh that were being made to him to sort of you know go to the show and kind of you know feeling that you know maybe that 10-day contract offer which everybody would die for is like you know i maybe i'm feeling a little bit more comfortable about myself that i can you know kind of pick and choose i mean a little bit of a and it's a pretty big gamble but you know i it speaks to something that 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 muscleman was bringing to the party at this point yeah i think you know what you identify is really the qualities in in muscleman that got the players to respond to him. One, they trusted him and he had been in the NBA, right? And and we get into this again with George Carl in the next se- sequence of the film, but someone that had been to the top of the mountaintop, as these guys have said, and is going to help someone get there. So they saw in him an opportunity to succeed. But, you know, with Tony, who's arguably ha- had the best career of anyone that played um, for the Patroons and maybe even the CBA to go on, you know, and star in the NBA, you know, first as a role player for the Lakers and to really blossom in a few years with the Timberwolves where he was averaging double digits and in their, you know, inception as a team. But, you know, I think for him to say, I'm not going to take a 10 day contract. I want to, I want a year and then to get two years from the Lakers. And he was willing to stay here and play with Albany the rest of the way um, and not just cut and run speaks volumes to what Musselman brought to the table from, you know, a coaching perspective, but also just the environment in Albany that the team was beloved and closely followed and the games were well attended. And it also speaks to the competitive nature of these guys where 
they want to win, right? They want to play games. They want their touches. They want their shots. They want to be involved. And, you know, if they're not, they're going to look for some other place to go. But also the fact that he was learning how to be a pro from Bill and to come into his own. I mean, he was sent down for a reason, and then he made the right choice of, I'm going to listen to my coach, and I'm going to do what he says and get and get back to where I need to. And a lot of stories come through in the doc, and some of it's in the final edit, and some of these aren't. But a lot of these players, um, they don't know how to take rejection. They're the best player on their CYO team. They're the best player on their high school team. They're the best player on their college team. And then they can't stick in the NBA and they're stuck in the CBA and they, they have to be told they're not good enough. Now, Tony's an example and a lot of these guys of listening to Bill and doing what, what they're told and what's going to get you to the next level and having success. So buying into a team concept and kind of embracing it is kind of what he did. And um, again, that's why he has you know, fond memories of Albany and, and lasting memories and connections with fans and would you know, do anything. If somebody wanted to talk about the Patroons, Tony's going to talk about it, despite having played with Magic and Kareem and, um, and on with the Timberwolves and Knicks and, and a number of other organizations. Uh, let's uh, get, maybe get to the uh, the Malt here uh, because uh, you know I, I, I'm I'm amazed at sort of at the sort of last I guess uh, uh, burst of of championship success with uh, the advent and the arrival of George Carl right obviously a, a a big name and story in his own right yeah but before we get to that for a second though explain to me how the Patroons uh, did they get lucky with two great successive coaches and then a third with with George Carl or there's got to be something. What was it that was sort of drawing these uh, these coaches of of and then the success that came accordingly? Was it uh, was it cosmic or was it you know was it sort of a grand design or, or something in between? I, it's probably something in between. I, mean, I probably should give credit to Gary Holly, who was the team's general manager. You know, for that for this whole run, their first run from '82 to '92, Gary was the GM. Um, he's a guy that played college basketball. He had a cup of coffee in the in the majors, I believe, with the Texas Rangers. So had a had a background in sports. He wanted nothing to do with sports when he got out of baseball. He wanted to just get a job and 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 not deal with it. And then goes on to run run this team for ten years. But he obviously knew what he was doing in terms of how to run the organization. And I think his recruitment of coaches it obviously worked. And and Jim Coyne was they worked hand in hand together. They got the community behind him, and they were able to bring these coaches in. But Phil's success is what triggered it, right? So Phil had success. The fans came. They enjoyed it. And then when Bill was going to go to Albany, it continued. Having those two, you know, have been having had those two coaches here, it made it much easier to get George Carl in um, because if he wanted to get back to the NBA, right? And he looks and says, well, look, what, what happened to Phil Jackson? Well, now he's with the bill with the bulls. What happened to bill Mossman? Well, you know, he's up with Minnesota now. So, you know, not that you couldn't get to the NBA coaching other teams in the CBA, but Albany was a proven brand and the community was going to support you. The fans were going to come to games and I think they paid well. I, I, I gotta be honest with you. You know, um, they paid well. I think, I heard a story that uh, you know in one location in a different maybe in, in Tampa Bill or Ra- Rapid City Bill Musselman was making 60 grand um but I think Albany could only pay him 40 on the books but he knew he was going to win and be supported and and he, and he went for it so 
you know, once you, it, it kind of, it's a snowball effect. And I think, but that it, it started with Phil and it just continued. So, um, you know, where George was for him to come back, this was where it was going to be. But, um, I don't think people really understand the quality of play in the CBA at that time. And I want to just touch on it quickly because um, today the, you know, you, you have the NBA, you have the G league, but probably the second best quality of play is the, is the top leagues in, in Europe, um, in Spain, in France. Those are probably better than the G league, which is more developmental in the early to mid eighties. The CBA was it. It was the NBA, then the CBA, and it was maybe on par with Europe, but the CBA was at least matching Europe. So you had the NBA and then this was the next, the next, the next best talent. So these guys were athletic. They could shoot, they could play above the rim. They played defense. So, you know, it was a really a, a high quality of play. And that's part of the reason why fans supported it because you went to these games, these were professionals and they wanted to win. And, you know, they were pit bulls. They were getting after it every night. There were no nights off. You know, these guys were fighting hard um, because they wanted it. This is their livelihood. And if they don't make it, you know, uh, there's a book, I think, by David Levine. He calls it Life on the Rim. And he follows the team around for a year. And it is Life on the Rim. That, you know, you're either going to you're gonna sink the shot and go in or you're going to roll off. And that's the end of your basketball career. So the quality of play was really something something to be seen. Yeah, uh, and uh, we uh, encourage our listeners to, uh, if they haven't listened to our episode 118 with David, uh, you uh, will enjoy that one as his uh, his recount of the the, the season uh, that uh, Brendan speaks of. The um, I'd say it's important to remember too that the NBA right had less teams then too, right? That's right. NBA yeah, that's also, a good point. You know, yeah, the NBA was also if you, if you know, for folks who weren't around in the 70s, right? You know, what, the NBA really kind of you know had its ups and downs in the 70s, and and it was not nearly the juggernaut that it is today. So you know, the quality of play there's plenty of opportunities for great players. Obviously, the college basketball system, you know, being a, a relatively strong pipeline of players and stuff, right? So this is to your point. I mean, there's. Absolutely some superior talent and, you know, probably evidenced by the fact that there was quite a bit of revolving doorness, both upstairs and downstairs for CBA players and talent and stuff. And, and a lot of the smaller mid-markets uh, thirsty for and uh, ravenous for any taste of, quote unquote, professional basketball, especially that being arguably the second, maybe or third best league in the world. Absolutely. And, you know, as they, you know, the, the, their fans are, you know, they want a taste of this high quality basketball and you talked about CB, the CBA developing, and we mentioned Jim Drucker, the commissioner. You know, he did a lot with entertainment. And you think about minor league sports today uh, in 2020 and the successes that minor leagues have, especially you think about minor league baseball, you know, those franchises that are successful, it's partly because of the on-field enter, uh, sports, but also the entertainment in between innings, what's good for families, what's going on. And Jim Drucker kind of understood this. So he made the CBA games, you know, not necessarily a circus, but it had that atmosphere. There was always some sort of contest. There was something else going on at halftime. He made it an entertainment package, and he understood the importance of that. And then as ESPN was growing up, you know, you go 86, 87, 88, or 87, 88, 89, they're covering these games. That just jacks up the attention and the eyeballs on the CBA, too, because now these games are on TV, and that doesn't prevent people from going to the games. That means people want to go to the games. They want to see what this is about to have a live broadcast, and they want to be on TV and be part of it. So the CBA really grew from, like we said, 76, 70 to 78. They're playing in high school gyms. They expand the league. 
you know, by the late 80s, early 90s, they're playing in 10, 12, 14,000 seat arena. Some of them are drawing well, some aren't, but the franchise fees went up from, you know, probably at the beginning, 25 grand to, you know, a few hundred thousand dollars, if not more for each franchise. So it was moving in the right direction. All right. Well, it was clearly moving in the right direction for 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 the team, and obviously with Carl uh, at the at the helm, um, you know the ninety two, um, sorry, ninety ninety one season, a fifty and six regular season record, winning all twenty eight home games, and you know I, it was happy days are here again. I maybe a little bit of on, on that year, and maybe sort of sort of the aftermath of that, because it wasn't there that long thereafter that that the team not only uh, sort of. I, did they fall in hard times, or was it kind of just they got sideways uh, with the, I, the you new know, I think and all that? What what occurred, you know, with with George's run here, you know, he came in um, eighty eight, eighty nine for his first season, and the team was still at the Armory, and they had a really good team. They got into the playoffs; they were successful. Um, they didn't win it, but they had some good players that would develop. And then George uh, left the next season to go coach in Spain. Um, at the top tier league over there, I think with Barcelona. Um, and then he comes back for 90, 91, you know, he's been successful 80, 89 in Albany, 89, 90 successful in Spain comes back 90, 91 and just loads this team up with just as much talent as Bill Musman had done in 87, 88, Mario Eli, Vincent Askew, Bernard King's brother um, was there. You know, they have all these guys that were coming in, Terry Stotts. So he had this great team. They go 50 and six, undefeated at home. And this year they're playing in the new arena downtown here in Albany. The the time, well now now it's the Times Union Center. <laughs> it was the Knickerbocker Arena at that time, which is what like 17,000 seats or so. It's probably if they if they it's probably it could probably fit 14 for basketball. You know, maybe for a concert they could do 17, but 14,000 for basketball. So. It wasn't a fit for the Patroons. You know, you draw 3,000 or 4,000 in the armory, it's great, it's loud, it's hectic, it feels crazy. You put three or 4,000 seats in a 14,000-seat arena, it's crickets, right? So it lost that magic. It lost that grittiness. It lost that – they had no home court advantage. But they won so much that it was okay that first season. And I think there was – the new car smell of that arena was such a aphrodisiac for this town. Um, they opened the arena with Frank Sinatra. I remember going to games there. Everything was new. We had never seen it. It was like, you know, something that didn't belong in Albany. It was, you know, an NBA quality an NHL quality arena with luxury boxes and concessions and an atrium and, you know, two tiers, but going 50 and six in a new building and having these great players now going up, back to the NBA and George having success, it was really another feeling that, look, this team is great almost, you know, no matter what they do, they're going to win, win, win. Um, but after that season, George went on um, to coach in the NBA and he had success. A lot of his players went up, Mario Eli, Vince Askew, um, and they had success. But after that, it kind of, they stumbled. And I think being in the new building, the costs went up. The cost for all the teams in the CBA went up. So as the Patroons started to fade, the CBA started to experience problems. Jim Drucker was no longer involved, and he did a good job of holding costs in check for each team. You're only going to travel with nine guys. Maybe we'll let you travel with 10, right? All of a sudden, teams are traveling with 12. 
and what was once a Northeast regional league is now all over the country. And there's, and so travel goes up, everything gets more expensive. None of these teams can afford it. Albany has higher costs for a new facility. The gate is down because people aren't going because it's not as exciting. And it just kind of, they just really, they just stumbled. And at the same time, entertainment options changed and things just became, it was a different time. It was harder to make it work. So they stumbled until 92, 93. They changed their name to be the Pontiacs after a local car dealership. When that happened, I don't know what you would compare that to. Um, like when the Colts moved out of Baltimore in the middle of the night, like changing the name of a franchise from the Patroons, that's a beloved team name with a historic Dutch connection in the Hudson Valley to a car <laughs> for a car dealership. Must have been it was a big kind of crazy. Yeah, you know, nobody, nobody supported them. And then they moved to Hartford, played in Hartford for a couple of years, and then they folded. Um, so it was, you know, an unceremonious end to a, to a great franchise, but that's what you see a lot of times with minor league sports, right? I mean, you have teams here, they're here, they can have success and they go away without that longevity that, that you see at the, the major league level. I mean, I, there was a little bit of a hint of, uh, in the, in the doc about sort of the, I don't want to call it the curse, but sort of the, the move from the armory. Uh, to the yeah. arena. I mean, I, that seems a little simplistic, but it uh, it seems like that. I don't know. I, you wonder. I guess everybody wonders, right? If if they had stayed in the armory and sort of w- would it have made any difference? I guess. Do you think? You know, um, I think it would have probably helped keep costs down, and I think it would have made the in-game experience better for fans. Um, it needed an upgrade because it was getting decrepit and just. It was a great atmosphere when the game was going on, but everything else around it was bad. Um, and it's one of those things, you know, it, the team existed on some level to help Jim Coyne create this arena, you know, to create the Knickerbocker Arena, to have a 14,000-seat arena, not only for sports, but for concerts. You know, they could bring in the biggest tours now, could play Albany, where before you would have had to go to New York or Boston or Montreal to see somebody, and now you could say right here in Albany and Frank Sinatra, the Grateful Dead were here, Guns N' Roses, you know, anybody who was anybody was and is playing here. So this team was created as a, as a pilot program for him to bring people out, and it worked. And then it became a victim of its own success, so to speak. So if they had stayed at the armory, it probably would have kept costs down. It would have kept the crowds more engaged. You want, when you go to an event, any event, you want to feel part of something. You want to feel energy. And when you had 1,200 people in a 14,000-seat arena. It's just dead, and it's just sad, and it feels like a, a, you know, for a team to be successful in the minor leagues, it needs to feel like it's a major league attraction, and that did the opposite. That made it feel like a very minor attraction. Um, So when people would go to one game, they weren't going to go back. You can't give a minor league sports fan an excuse not to go back. You have to eliminate those excuses, and they clearly didn't do that. All right, so to round around the corner here, then give me a sense then of, and this is this is fascinating, and we got to go another hour and a half on on all this, but <laughs> but but we'll both have lives to get back to. I think. Yeah. Give me a sense of what you sort of got from this story. Obviously, you're 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 in and around that area. It's it's obviously part of your of your life. You've sort of been in the in the region for some time. But but what might the the sort of non-capital uh, region resident kind of get out of all this? Because I, the one thing one thing that I got among a bunch of others that I in seeing this 
is it's just it almost feels I mean and and it speaks to frankly the ability for you to find and get uh, key people in all of this this store. I mean you you have people like Bob Lee and 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 Phil Jackson and I mean you have like your top uh, Craig Kestershire on, on ESPN the radio. I mean you've got all these great names of people who have gone on to uh, or still in uh, amazing uh, walks of life and success and 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 yet they, they all seeming seemingly to a person have sort of these very warm, fond memories. I, I, that doesn't feel manufactured to me. I, I got to think that that's, I, I want to overuse the term, but there's a special sort of thing to this this team in this time. Yeah, there really is. And I think um, it's something that it can get overstated, but there's, for any minor league team that has seen people come through and go on to, to success, for any minor league market, for a market that has pushed someone up in entertainment and sports, um, there's something that people can take hold on. So somebody could be listening to this episode, um, you know, on the West Coast, but one of the, and they may have no idea where Albany is. Most people, in, in if you're in New York City, they don't even know where we are, even though we're the capital of the state. They think we're out near Buffalo, but they have no idea. So someone could be across the country listening to this, and the stories that they're going to kind of hold on to are the fact that these folks that went on to be wildly successful and you know about the success, you're learning about the determination, the desire, and the ability to kind of just continue and work hard in somewhat difficult circumstances and not necessarily the most ideal place for something that they love to do, right? I mean, you know, these players were coming from all over the world, literally, and ending up in Albany, New York, which no one knew where it was, in not ideal circumstances, playing in an odd arena for coaches that they didn't even know. The coaches are willing to ride in vans for 10, 15 hours driving with these players all over the country because they want a shot to succeed. So people can kind of connect to that to that storyline of you know what goes on behind the scenes. You see the you see the finished product when Phil is on the court holding up a championship trophy with Michael Jordan, right? You see that. You see even when Bill Musselman's back with the Timberwolves and they're winning in front of 35,000 people in the Metrodome. Um, you see it with George Carl. He's coaching in the finals uh, against Phil Jackson and the Bulls, right? So that's an interesting twist right there. But you don't see the hard work that goes on. You don't see these guys playing and training in a, in a rundown old armory going out for wings and beer with fans living and doing laundry at a fans at a fan's house all those van um, lines that you uh, you accurately depict yeah so i mean yeah they're you know riding in the van and all the crazy stories that go along with that because i think everybody no matter what your career or what your path in life is everybody has moments that they look back on fondly and you realize that even some of these folks that have gone on to great success you know they really are down-to-earth, normal folks. And and maybe this is just luck that these folks that came through Albany were like that, but I, that's one of the things I was surprised at when I sat down because, you know, you interview people, and we interview folks for corporate work, nonprofits, and do a lot of things, you know, just for our own business. And, you know, you can get people that have an attitude on set, and even though no one knows who they are, right? They don't, they're, they're giving you a difficult time. These guys, they don't need to be doing this, but they really enjoyed it, and they, just like we could talk for another two hours, they could have talked all day, and, and there were so many stories that we weren't even able to include because there was just so much, what are we going to cut, right? So, um, But this is a story that speaks to you know, determination, to success, um, to, to hard work, and there's so much intrigue in terms of the interplay between the people, 
politics involved with the building of the new arena, some of those things. So there's just a lot that goes into it and it's educational. You know, we've screened it in Albany. We've screened it at a couple of film festivals and I've had folks come up all different ages, some that know nothing about basketball and they really love the stories because they were genuine, right? They could tell that none of this was scripted. And um, I just would ask questions, let these guys go and they would give the answers. And I was always amazed when some of their answers would match up and everybody was kind of corroborating the other story. So I knew it was accurate and they were telling it because they remembered it. So, and you know, there was no pre-interview or anything set up like that. It was just kind of an honest, it's an honest story being told. Well, I've had the luxury of being able to see the whole thing and uh, it's, it's fantastic. So why not maybe you give the opportunity to, uh, here's the, to promote, how are people going to be able to outside of the occasional screening which you've done already, how can people, how will people be able to access, stream, uh, see, otherwise ingest uh, this uh, fantastic film? No, thank you for that. So we just are finishing doing the final uh, color grading on on some of this. And like I said, because it was a a project that we did uh, not full-time, it's taken longer than we would have ideally wanted, but we wanted to do it justice. So we've just wrapped up kind of the final post-production. And if folks check out the minor league mecca.com um, or they can even Google Patroon's movie. You'll probably find it. Google minor league mecca, or go to the minor league mecca.com. Um, you know, depending on when they go, they can either sign up um, to get information on the, on the download and the stream that will be available soon. Or by the time they go and check it out, we might even have, they can just click on it and they can, they can download it or stream it. Um, we might even put some DVDs up there for folks that want it as a memento or still have that, you know, that technology that they want to play. So they'll be able to go right online and find it and get it and, and, and share it. And I think, um, like I said, anybody that, if you love sports, if you love basketball, um, you know, you'll certainly love this film, but if you love great storytelling and interesting people, even if you're not into basketball, you're going to like it. If you like to laugh, there's comedy in it. So, um, we tried to give it something for everyone that people could get behind. Yeah, and again, it's uh, to uh, documentary aficionados out there. It's uh, the the quality of the the interviews, the settings. It's it's all top notch, and you've done a tremendous job. Having not been, if you will, a documentarian, I guess by trade, sure. I, I was uh, just floored by uh, the this, the sheer high quality of it. I guess the only last question I would sort of ask is that I got to think that given your company's uh, uh, work with uh, the Albany Empire of the uh, now. Uh, R.I.P. <laughs> Arena Football League. Yeah, I wonder yeah. if there's a story in there too, the history of that team as well as maybe the Arena League. Uh, yeah, I mean, look, I mean, this is uh, the the uh, they they just won a title in the AFL, and there was an, the Albany Firebirds were here before that, and yeah. they folded, and it's like this is, you know, this is life in uh, in a minor league city, right? These teams come and go, and I, you know, when I was a kid, I would watch the Albany Colony Yankees, and this was the Yankees farm team, and they had. The core four: Derek Jeter, Posada, Rivera. Those guys came through Albany, right? And they played here. And then that team moved away, you know. And now there's a Houston Astros uh, single A short season team here. So, you know, part of life in a market like this, as many of the listeners know, um, is is these changes that occur. You don't have one entity for you know for the for your entire. Uh, sporting life to cheer for well look i um there's a certain charm uh to if you will minor league sports i think albany will always be sort of a a rich uh place for uh for teams and look there seems to be no shortage of of leagues and uh, mid-size arenas and and teams and 
you know, I we're recording this and during a you know, in the midst of some uh some seriously turgid economic uh uh, hiccups for right now, probably sure. overdue, and and I've I've sort of made the case over many months that, you know, we could be approaching peak sports. I mean, there's this we're sort of at the end of maybe a 15 year or so cycle, just generally economically, yeah, economically that you know has not uh, forgotten about sports along the way, and and there's a lot of you know there's things like private equity and and valuations and 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 I I don't know there's 30 teams in Major League Soccer. I mean, you know, there's lots of things that just seem. I don't want to say out of whack, but, you know, some of these things are somewhat cyclical, too. And you wonder if there are some uh, uh, future opportunities, I guess, for, for cities like Albany. For I, you know, you know, I, I think that there are, and your point is well taken, because people that focus on major league sports and the last, especially 20, 30 years, all people know is growth, right? Expansion, new teams, new markets, very little contraction. If a team is going to be contracted, they typically just move it to a, a market where it can be successful. So, you know, you look at, the, the long-term trends, you know, there's never going to be continuous growth. And these things are, they are interesting to look at. Um, you know, interestingly enough with the Patroons, one of the, one of the players from the team, Derek Rowland, who was a mainstay here uh, during the eighties is now coaching a reborn Patroons in Albany. And they're playing in a league that's been founded by David Magley, who also played for Phil here in Albany. So it's called the TBL and they have teams, there's 12 teams sprinkled across the country playing in high school gyms, but they're back here in Albany now playing at the Armory. Um, they had a couple of rough years where they didn't really have ownership and they were doing it on a shoestring, and they got an owner this year, Dr. Tim Maggs, locally. They're drawing between 1,000 to 2,000 a game, and um, they're coming off. They won their league last year, and they're trying to rebuild it. They're trying to get this thing going again. So um, I'm fully supportive of it. They're, they're having some success, and um, you know it, they're doing the legwork to do it. So there is, if it's done right and you can bring entertainment to people, they'll come out for it. But it requires a lot of hard work. There's a lot of hours that people probably aren't getting paid for, but they do it again because they love it. And that's a constant, right? You're always going to have minor leagues because there's people that want to succeed and they love the game, whether it's soccer, hockey, basketball, football, it's going to continue. All right. Our thanks to Brendan. Fascinating conversation. They tend to be here on this little show. And uh, we uh, love uh, the film, and you will too. Uh, you want to find out more about it and when it's available, how it will be found, and, and uh, you can access it. Go to theminorleaguemecca.com. That's theminorleaguemecca.com, all one word. Uh, you can also follow uh, their doings about the movie uh, on Twitter, at Patroons Movie. That's P-A-T-R-O-O-N-S, movie, all one word. Uh, on Facebook and Instagram, you can follow them at the minor league mecca uh and uh, again it's it's a tr- it's it's fantastic it's so well done uh and all the people involved that we've talked about and more uh phil jackson and george carl uh eric musselman the son of bill uh, uh bob lee is i mean there's all kinds of great uh, uh, mark kestisher is on the espn radio and uh, uh it's fantastic it's all uh, people who have just fond memories and and wistful ones uh, it's all, it's all, it's, it's, it's fantastic. You'll absolutely love it. And uh, we will, of course, let you know uh, pointedly when 
uh, any specific uh, announcements or, or availabilities are out there, but make sure you follow them uh, in the interim. And of course, make sure you follow us on social media too. That's also a good way to keep uh, keep tabs on, on all the doings of our various guests and, and stories and uh, reminiscences that they represent. Uh, you'll find us on Twitter, of course, at Good Seats Still. You'll find us on Instagram at Good Seats Still Available. You'll find us on Facebook as well. Just search up Good Seats Still Available. You'll find a little page devoted to us there. Uh, of course, you can go to our website. That's all things this show, including every single stinking episode we've ever done. Uh, you want to stream them or, or download them or share them with friends. Do whatever you want with them. Uh, within legal reason, of course. Uh, and that's at goodseatsstillavailable.com. That seems pretty obvious, right, by now? Uh, you want to send us some email? You can do that, too, of course. You have your own CBA memories. You got your own league or team that, that we haven't uh, talk, talked about yet or touched upon. Uh, we're always welcome to uh, hearing your suggestions, uh, your commentary. Please keep it clean uh, and, and supportive if you can. But, you know, if you got a... If you gotta, uh, criticism that's uh constructive and helpful we'll certainly take that we're you know we're, we're big people here and of course that's uh hello at good that's our email address uh we have a weekly email newsletter you can sign up for that too on the website and i think that's kind of it uh we of course want to say thank you of course as always to jerry Payne, jerry Payne productions uh for putting our pieces together always appreciated and uh, always appreciate you listening out there in wherever you're listening to and how you're listening to it. Hang in there, everybody. It's a, it's a tough world that we're, uh, we've entered into, but uh, hopefully we've uh, enlightened you and uh, perhaps keeping you occupied uh, uh, otherwise uh, to kind of keep your, your thoughts and your doings a little bit more uh, positively uh, uh, focused uh, for at least a little bit of time. And we're, we're hopefully, uh, we hope we kept you entertained for just a little while while the world crumbles around us. Uh, until uh, next week, uh, we will persevere and we hope you will too. Thank you so much for listening. And uh, until then, take care, everybody. Ta-ta.